Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Khan and I talk about how you can start, run and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called How I Self-Published Zero to Sold, a best-selling book on bootstrapping. So I'm going to be talking about the journey of how I wrote the book, how I published it and all the kind of response I got um, in this podcast episode today. So let's get started. Two months ago, Pretty much to the day, I self-published a book and it's called Zero to Sold, How to Start, Run and Sell a Bootstrap Business. And I published and released it through pretty much only Twitter. And within 24 hours, I sold 350 copies. And within another 24 hours, the book was number one on Product Hunt and already a category bestseller on Amazon. And after a week, a thousand copies had been sold. With sales still going strong and the book ranking as number one new release in the startups and small business Amazon categories, it was crazy. So how did it all happen? That's what I'm going to be talking about today. You can find the written version of today's podcast on my blog, The Bootstrap Founder, um, where you will see a lot of pictures that I took along the way, a lot of screenshots and tweets and all these kind of things. But I'm still going to talk about all these things in detail, so... If you just want to listen, that's perfectly fine. The the beginning, I guess, is what I call the void because it's the opposite of a successful place. It started with a blog post that I never published. Back in 2018, I was so deeply immersed in working on Feedback Panda, the teacher productivity SaaS that I co-founded with my partner, Danielle, that I didn't have much time or energy to write or pretty much do anything else than running the business. Every day was filled with customer conversations and product work and with barely any space to reflect on what I had learned in between. It was all just really grunt work, building, running the business, pretty much working in the business as opposed to working on the business, which is what you want to be able to do. But again, it was in the middle of it, so there was lots to do. And I used a few moments of clarity that I had in between, and they were rare, to jot down notes in a text document, just hoping that I'd find some time to polish them into an article eventually. But it never got anywhere near being ready to be published. I did some writing, I did some kind of rewriting and turning my draft into something publishable, but I never did, never took the time to build up the infrastructure and all these kind of things. So at some point, we chose to sell the business. There was two years into running Feedback Panda, having built it up from zero, from bootstrapping it from zero to $55,000 in MRR. And after a few months of due diligence and transitioning the business over to the new owners, I finally had all the time that I ever wanted. And my life turned from running a business at full speed, 24-7, into idling my thumbs all day long. And that was crazy. When you build an exceptionally sellable company, like ours was, apparently, because it got sold super easily, you focus on making yourself replaceable, right? But little did I know that once I was replaced, I didn't have a purpose anymore. And that was a big problem. So I threw myself right into my next project at the time. And it was documenting what we did and sharing what we had learned. So leading up to building Feedback Panda, I had consumed a lot of content that successful founders had shared with the community. So now I wanted to do the exact same thing, give back to other bootstrap founders and indie hackers. And since I hadn't yet decided on a medium through which I would share my insights, I started collecting content ideas by taking notes whenever I thought of a particular theme, something like that. And I knew that I would want to release articles in some shape on many subjects on the platform. So kind of planned them out as blog posts from the start. So I started working on this 
list of things that I wanted to write about in August of 2019, just a couple months after we had sold the business. And initially, all those ideas revolved around coping with stress and anxiety on some level. That had been the emotional state in which I had found myself towards the end of writing Feedback Panda the most. And the first series of blog posts that I wanted to write was actually called The Emotional Journey of a Bootstrap Founder. I think I wrote a couple. I didn't finish all the ones I, I wanted to write because, um, yeah, later I found that other topics might be interesting too. It's not just all about stress and anxiety, but that was the first real series that I wanted to write. And in a Notion document, I pretty much created a table of all the blog post title ideas that I had. And quickly after I had exhausted all my anxiety-related topics, and there were quite a few, I pivoted into other areas of running a SaaS business. And within a couple of days, I had aggregated somewhere between, I guess, 40 to 50 blog post ideas, just a, a lot of lines in the document. And at that point, I understood for the first time that this might actually be my next big project. That's not just something that I'm doing on the site. This is actually something that I might be doing for quite a while. So whenever I felt like it, I would click on each blog post title idea or a random one and just jot down a few thoughts on what I think I would write about in the article. And I would add links to interesting essays and papers, research papers out there, even photos of little sketches that I made on paper or screenshots of things that I did. I would just add more and more. It was still kind of the um, knowledge gathering phase, right? I wanted to figure out what was I going to be writing about without actually writing about it. And then I started at some point to actually write, right? Turning a little bullet point into a sentence or paragraph. And if you do that often enough, you will end up with a piece of text that's actually quite interesting. Um, And several blog posts took shape over those weeks, and I decided to turn the whole project into a reality. I polished those articles following the recommendations by a fabulous writer called Julian Shapiro. Um, He has a really good guide on how to write interesting and engaging blog posts. It kind of starts with building an introduction first and then testing the introduction just kind of conveying the whole message of the article that you're going to write in an introduction. And if that's interesting, then write the rest, right? Write a skeleton and kind of fill in the the, the gaps. But that's what I did. I ended up with 10 or so pieces to start the block with. And then actually, yeah, that's where I was at the point. And here's an open secret about me that some people might actually already know. I'm super lazy. I, I try to avoid work wherever I can, particularly if it's tedious. Now, I'll spend a lot of time to make sure I never have to do it again. That kind of worked super well building a well-documented and highly automated business like Feedback Panda, but it is a drawback for a content creator because writing well and regularly takes a lot of discipline. And if you're lazy, that might be a problem. So I knew that I needed some structure in place to hold myself accountable beyond the articles that I'd already written. So to make sure that this project would just evaporate after a couple of days, I decided to commit to building a blog by publishing one article every week and at least for two years. That was my initial commitment. But how could I force myself into writing every week? Well, I just looked at the content that I regularly consumed, and I figured that releasing a newsletter every week would keep me accountable for just for writing something meaningful regularly, because the people that I admired who had newsletters did the exact same thing. So when I built the Bootstrap Founder blog, I immediately set it up to host the Bootstrap Founder newsletter as well. I'm using ConvertKit for the newsletter and WordPress for the blog, just as like a basic technological insight. I released the first episode of that, both the blog, I guess, and the newsletter within, within days of making the blog public. And then I announced the launch on Twitter. I got a couple likes, right? At that point, um, I, it wasn't surprising. I had a fledgling audience, I guess, of maybe 500 followers on Twitter. 
which I had carefully aggregated over the last 10 years. And I just knew that this is going to take some time. So I made sure to share my content as much as I could within those first couple of weeks and including on the Indie Hackers product page that I had created for the blog. Because if there's one thing that I figured out during running and then selling Feedback Panda, being on Indie Hackers means a whole lot for an Indie Hacker and a bootstrapper. We sold our business pretty much because we had its revenue financials open on Indie Hackers for other people to see. That got us the interest. That got us the people that wanted to buy us and then did actually acquire. So I wrote a little blog post, um, not a blog post, but a tweet. Um, said I started the blog and ever since selling Feedback Panda, it's been eager to start giving back to the indie hacker community. Uh, just want to share my experiences and here's what worked for us and what didn't. Put out the blog and got like 100 likes, which was really nice. Um, also put a yeah indie hackers post, launched a bootstrap on the blog, explained the whole thing, put a couple links to the first couple articles in there too with the titles. Thing I, I first started talking about uh, customer service and how to scale your SaaS without scaling your anxiety and how to de- determine the size of your SaaS market. And I posted all these things to both Indie Hackers and Hacker News as well. Some got picked up, some didn't, you know, Hacker News. But that's just what it was. Um, my st- Twitter strategy, honestly, from that day on to this day is super simple. I'm just myself all the time because I love reading the stories of other founders, no matter if they are succeeding or struggling. So I amplify those voices. I'm retweeting their milestones. I already did that before and I did it even more after. And I commented when they asked for help with something I could um, could help them with. And I did that consciously every single day. And within a couple of weeks, my audience grew and apparently both intrigued by my blog post, must have been, my levels of activity because I was there every single day on Twitter and the engagement with and by the community that I experienced. So that kind of started ramping up my, my follower account as well. And just the amount of engagement that people had. And it also gave me the fuel to write more and more. So there were weeks when I'd work on three to five blog posts at the same time, driven by the discussions that I had on Twitter or the the things that I just had on my list still. More and more topics and themes emerged through this particular work. And the list of 40 blog post title ideas turned into a list of hundreds of topics and all in different stages of being worked on. Um, Some of them I still haven't published, obviously. And throughout all of this, there was something interesting. People started asking to consume my content on another medium, something I didn't really think about. They wondered if I would ever start a podcast or just record myself reading the, the blog posts. And as a German who learned speaking English mostly from watching Al Bundy on Married with Children in the, the 90s and uh, raid leading large groups of people in World of Warcraft back in 2008, I kind of hesitated to put myself out there in an audio-only format because it's uh, English as a second language situation. So... Uh, Yeah, but I quickly understood that this would result in a number of not-to-be-missed exciting opportunities. First off, I could diversify my user base, right, to include include those who had no time to read or just didn't want to read or didn't like reading or had trouble reading. Just would be a perfect channel to market whatever I would write. Um, And it would also be a great channel to market what I would end up selling in the future because I didn't think about anything in particular then. I just was building an audience. And... It, um, yeah, it was just another way, right, of reaching people. And finally, I guess, it would also allow my readers to put a voice to the thoughts that they were reading. And that is always nice. That's why I like podcasts by people who write books. Because finally, you hear them. You hear, I guess, the the engagement in their voice, the motivation, why they do something, if they're droning on or if they're exciting. You know, people, you just have a person that's more relatable. And I really like that. And... Uh, I would just read the article aloud. That was what I did for the first half of each show. And then 
after that, I could add some unscripted content to each episode to make it attractive for the people who already read what I had written. Just some stuff where I would talk about everything, either the stuff that I just read aloud or a completely different topic. If you listen to the first couple of episodes, sometimes there's a completely different topic. In the second part, the later um, you start in, in the, the list of episodes, you find me talking more about the topic that I already mentioned in the beginning because it just brings some additional value more than opening a new whole can of worms often so i wanted the material between the podcast and the blog to be synchronized that was also important to me so i spent a few weeks actually recording a show or two every day to catch up and while i was working on this while i was on this journey through my back catalog let's call it that i noticed one fascinating thing all those blog post titles that i'd written when random thoughts had occurred to me they just seemed to fit into a structure of of sorts so it was a larger entity and it started to take shape and after a few hours of shuffling titles around in a notion document i had found that i was well on my way to write a fully fetched guide on bootstrapping it's right there and without knowing or intending for it to happen there it was everything i knew about the journey that we went through from idea to acquisition so i had maybe written 30 percent of the articles that i actually wanted to have in the guide at that point and I decided to go at it the, the, for the rest of them, I guess, the ones that I hadn't written. The only way I know as a software engineer and as a bootstrapper, I just would sketch out a foundation and then iterate slowly and deliberately, right? Build a prototype and iterate and iterate. And for the guide, the, the first version of, at that point was called the Bootstrap Founder Guide to Bootstrapping. <laughs> Slightly redundant. It, uh, yeah, but that's what it was. And it meant that I would start it as a compendium. And compendium being a list of couple paragraphs for each topic that you that you want to explore that's what a compendium is so i thought that would be the best kind of shape and then link to the articles right so i outlined it by sorting all the blog posts that i'd already written in some sort of structure and then putting only headlines into the gaps where i hadn't written an article yet and then over a couple of days somewhere early january 2020 i filled out those gaps with two to three paragraphs each So I condensed the most important points that I wanted to talk about, maybe eventually when I would write the articles, and I condensed those thoughts in a couple sentences and put them with every topic that I wanted to write about. And then, honestly, I just immediately released a compendium on the 30th of January when I had everything set up correctly, just two months after I'd started writing on the blog. And a few days prior, a Twitter follower had suggested the name From Zero to Sold, for the compendium, because I, I guess the Bootstrap Founders Guide to Bootstrapping while bootstrapping or something was not short or interesting enough. So I really liked From Zero to Sold. I kind of shortened it a bit to Zero to Sold. And then I featured that new compendium with that name prominently on my website and my social media profiles. And I updated all my Twitter bio, my LinkedIn bio, and you know all these, these little places where you are a product on. Just put the link in there. Um, and that, that's what I did. Then I started tweeting. And from there on, I just continued to write an article every single week. I would share it with my growing newsletter audience who had like maybe 10, 15 signups every single day. Um, you could still find those little milestones on the Indie Hackers uh, product page for the Bootstrap founder. And I would read this new article on the podcast and integrate it into the compendium, put the link right in there. And when I'd written around, let's say, half of the number of articles that I wanted to write, someone on Twitter asked me another really insightful question. They asked me, well, can I get the compendium as a PDF? I would even pay $10 for it. That's what the person said. And it really made me think. And when I think, I tweet. So lots of people replied that they'd love to see the compendium fleshed out, maybe even as a full book. And 
suppose you've looked into Zero to Sold, the, the book that I've written, or checked out the compendium in the, the first half of it, I guess, or the first quarter, maybe. In that case, you'll know already that I recommend this kind of audience problem solution product approach, right? Um, start with an audience, solve their most critical problems. Find, f- first, find a group of people you want to help. That's the audience, right? Just make sure you really want to empower them. Find their critical problems, envision a solution that fits their workflow, and build a product in the medium they wish to use. And if you look at this, I was here with a group of founders and indie hackers that I really wanted to help. They were telling me that they really needed guidance on, build, guidance on, on building their business. That was their critical problem. They were asking for a full journey guide, which was the solution to their problem. And they wanted it as a book, which was the medium in which they wanted their product. This could not be more validated if I wanted to. So following my own approach that I suggested and used in the past, I just sat down to write the rest of the book. So let me maybe talk a bit now about the book itself. Let me share for a few details on how it exactly happened. The first few blog posts that I had written, which turned into chapters in the book later, were written in Notion, which really didn't lend itself to a long-form writing. And I quickly migrated those texts over to individual markdown files, which I edited with Typora, a Mac-based markdown editor, um, which is really nice. That's It's just super easy to use if you, if you write in markdown. And while this worked well with individual posts that I released every single week, didn't make much sense for a book which is a more comprehensive unit. So after a bit of research, I settled on using Scrivener for the manuscript. It's quite a nifty tool for writing a book, and it's mostly aimed at fiction writers, but still absolutely usable for nonfiction too. It's very popular with writers who own Macs. And people outline their whole books, characters, stories, and arcs in this. It's a cool piece of software, but there were two giant problems here. And neither of the tools, neither Typora nor Scrivener, had any kind of integration available for Grammarly, which is a spell checking and style guiding tool that I personally use in my professional writing and or anywhere that I write, honestly, where it's important to for the grammar and, and style to be okay. So that turned my writing process into a lot of, lot of back and forth copy and pasting. And that's kind of something you want to avoid. And from the looks of it, Grammarly now has a Word, Microsoft Word integration, which might make that behemoth of a word processor more interesting to write the manuscript in. But, you know, if you already settled on a different tool, it would be nice to use the tools, the other tools that you have. So integration, and I talk a lot about that in Zero to Sold as well, shouldn't be an afterthought. It should be for a SaaS product in particular, and Grammarly is that. that sh- um, should be, they should try to get into these products where people, uh, people write a lot. And it's often the people who create products like Scrivener, which is standalone software, that still have this kind of 90s approach to software, right? this kind of shareware <laughs> approach. You pay me once, I put it on your computer, and then... You just deal with it, and that's it. No integrations, no connectivity. It's just a tool on your computer, which is kind of fine if you don't need integrations or integrability. But yeah, if, if you want to use other tools that you are used to, really should think about building your product integration-oriented. And integration first, maybe even. So think about, think about having stuff like Zapier or um, Integromat, these kind of tools. So just an API integrated into the product from the beginning. Anyway, um, I should probably have used Word from the beginning. We're going to see why later. But I just didn't. I used the other tools. And there was a second big problem here that I encountered with Scrivener in particular. It had a particularly complicated and hard-to-use export interface, which I noticed when I first attempted to create an ebook out of a manuscript because I wanted to 
sell both the ebook and a printed book eventually. So I figured I'd start with the ebook, see how that works. Just didn't sit right with me. It took too much work to make it look nice. So I looked for an alternative. I needed a way to generate both ebooks and a print version or like a, I guess, a file that would then be used by print on demand services or a publisher to print the book. And I wanted to do that from the same manuscript, something that Scrivener didn't really allow me to easily do. And I found the perfect solution for this in a, a tool called Vellum. This one-time purchase Mac application, and it's quite expensive, I think it's 250 bucks or something like that, creates beautiful ebooks and print books at the same time. If, and if you don't believe me, just buy Zero to Sold in any format and you will see what I mean. Even just look at the screenshots if you find them somewhere. Without needing to do annual, any manual work, it generates reliably um, really high quality stuff within seconds. And what took me hours with other tools before, right? That's a big difference. The only problem was that it took me a while to get the styling uh, to transfer right from Scrivener with like headlines and quotations and stuff, even with Vellum's already impressive import capabilities. So again, the other tools to export from, they leave a lot lacking. So after I'd written the first draft of the manuscript, in Scrivener and then moved it into Vellum, I dove right back in, and this time using Grammarly a lot more. I also figured that I would need to correctly titleize the headlines in each chapter, right? Where you need to make sure that every word, other than a couple words in between, um, is capitalized. And there, there are these kind of different style guides all over the web, but it's hard to do manually, particularly if you have a lot of them. Um, so I wrote a little Apple automated workflow. Um, you will find the source files in the article that I'm going to publish, or that should already be published. Um, that little tool would turn sentences that are in all lowercase into the correct casing. And I needed to do this, I think, 50 times, so I automated it. It uses a little JavaScript um, on the in the script itself, but you can see this if you just go to my GitHub uh, account. It's Avidkal, and then I guess like slash zero dash two dash sold, where you find all the little open source things that I threw out there. And I also um, noticed that I didn't just need help writing or tooling to, uh, to do my writing. I also needed a cover for my book, something that I never really thought about um, until that point. So as a fan of book covers that aren't too complicated, I took inspiration with the books um, published by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I really like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's books because they're also very minimalistic. I decided that a uh, singularly descriptive image, which is always featured on his books, with some well-chosen type would do well for Zero to Sold. And that would be it. And I think uh, remembering the ordeal of creating a cover, Danielle was incredibly helpful here. Like She helped me in, insanely when picking out something that was actually good because I was designing something that I didn't usually do. So obviously I was always biased and her keen design eye and artistic sense often pointed out things that I completely missed. So I'm very grateful for her involvement here. So um, my first digital sketch looked fairly simple. I reused the title graphic that I had hand-drawn um, in Illustrator for the compendium, and I looked for a cool picture that was good enough for a little sketch. I found one um, with a boot, like a shoe, that had a print of money on it. It was an actual shoe that was sold in a store somewhere. You find the picture in the article, too. It was kind of nice, but it kind of didn't look like a good cover. It was just a, a stand-in, but did it in 10 minutes, was good enough for how I kind of wanted it. And then I that went all the way, uh, found a better picture to put on the cover. And I experimented with different types, uh, experimented with different ways of presenting the text, some different colors even, 
location of my name, location of the text, you will find all of these screenshots of all the steps that I took and all the designs that didn't make it in the article as well. I highly recommend it because there's a couple of very hilariously bad designs in there. And since I designed that myself, you can definitely reach out to me and tell me which one is the worst. <laughs> doesn't really matter. I, I'm still um, at, in awe at the fact that I actually designed the cover that doesn't seem to uh, scare people or that doesn't seem completely wrong or um, crap. Let's just call it that. So it took a couple of weeks to get it right. And still at the end, my last design was then heavily corrected by Danielle to look better. But what you see right now um, on the bookshelves and in your Kindle library, that's the final design that I did with a lot of help. So when I had the cover finished and the manuscript was ready for further steps and I had the means to create all the formats that I wanted, all the eBooks and the print, I just needed to continue actually going on with the publishing process. So I needed to research publishing. And the fundamental choice was somewhere between finding a traditional publisher or publishing the book myself. And having seen the success of many bootstrappers and founders publishing their work themselves, I decided um, to circumvent the particular middleman of traditional publishing and publish zero to sold myself as well. And honestly, the elephant in the room, I guess, you can't avoid Amazon if when you're getting anywhere close to books. Like, just can't. Even if I hadn't wanted to create a print version of my book, I would have missed out on a lot of distribution if I wouldn't list the ebook on Amazon in the Kindle program. So KDP, the Kindle publishing, Kindle distribution platform, I think. Um, but it's it's a publishing program, was chosen to list the ebook and create then again a print-on-demand paperback version of Zero to Sold. I decided to skip the Kindle Unlimited program, which gets you into the Kindle Unlimited um, selection of books. We don't sell the book, but you get kind of compensated by the amount of pages that people read in the book. I guess it would have been interesting for a book like Zero to Sold that has 500 pages. <laughs> Could probably make me some good money because you get a share of what everybody who has a subscription to Kindle Unlimited pays again, by the number of pages read. But I didn't want to do that because it would lock me into Amazon too much. Um, and I'm going to talk about this later and why that happens. So by not listing the, the book in that program, I could, for example, just sell it on other platforms as well. Because if you if you use Kindle Unlimited, you kind of lock your content into Amazon, the Amazon ecosystem. If you wanted to sell it anywhere else, on your own website even, you couldn't if you use Kindle Unlimited. So I opted out of that. And I choose to sell my digital books on Gumroad as well. First and foremost, I would sell an EPUB and a mobile version and maybe a few others. And we'll get to that later. But eventually, I also found a platform called draft to digital uh, It's a distribution platform for eBooks that would allow me to put the book into stores like Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and many other platforms that I've never heard of, which is cool because then people can find my book even though I don't know where they hang out. So uploaded all of that. And for my print version, I would also work with Ingram Spark, which is the, that's called print on demand arm of Ingram, a really, really well-established publisher. And they, they would allow the bookstores all over the world, any, any bookstore to order a book, physical copy, like a paper copy, straight through their global print on demand network, which is really cool. Like um, I didn't have any print books in Australia at, at any point. And I think Amazon takes a while to, to establish these kind of things in, in certain countries and continents. So having people actually order their book from the book 
store that they like to go to and that having it be printed somewhere and delivered there, now that's awesome, right? So how could I miss out on that? And I think at this point I sold maybe 50 books through the Ingram network, but it's still amazing that in any country all over the world, people could order it and would find their way to them in some way. Um, A critical decision here that I need to talk about is when it comes to publishing, at least, the use of ISBNs, these kind of numbers that every book has as an identifier for books. If you go through any distribution platform like KDP and Amazon or IngramSpark, they will likely offer you a free ISBN. And depending on the contractual details, that might really result in you being unable to sell your books outside of the platform. That could be a nasty shock if you're not expecting it. So I took all the advice out there to purchase my own ISBNs from the agencies that handles those here in Germany. Yes, there are agencies in every country for some reason managing the distribution and sale of those book numbers. And the worst part about all of this is in some countries you get your ISBNs for free. So hello, Canada. But not here in Germany, though. Here, I had to pay almost 200 euros for on some obscure website. Just really don't even look at it. It looks super scammy. It's not. It's official, but it looks weird. To legally publish my book. And since ebooks and print versions need different ISBNs and audiobooks too, I had to buy a pack of 10. Because if you buy one, it's like 50 bucks. If you buy 10, it's 200. You can already see the kind of scammy price tactics here, but it was super bizarre. Um, I, I paid for the money and then a week later I got an email with a, like a text file attached with a list of numbers. Super weird. But I used like three or four of them at this point so I can now write a couple more books without needing to buy more. So what a bargain, just 200 bucks. So ISBNs, it's important to have them because if you, if you get the Amazon ISBN um, that they offer for free with every book, you will have an ISBN and people can order their book as well through the ISBN. It's great, but you can never sell it anywhere else. And you cannot republish easily uh, without delisting and then listing with a new ISBN. There's a whole lot of work. So get those ISBNs before you ever publish a book. And I guess at this point, um, I I was done. I had everything I needed, at least for a a draft version. So I had the opportunity to actually create a print version through Vellum and send that first unedited draft to Amazon to print a proof copy. And I only ever printed one copy of that version which has a special place in my heart and my bookshelf. It's the longest version of the book and it's clocking in at 598 pages. And it has like a, one of the earlier designs on the cover too. So a design that was never used anywhere else. It's uh, the, the only copy that exists. So I was, I was really happy when that arrived, like three days or four days after I ordered it. And I looked at it. There's a picture of me on, in the article reading it. It's really nice. It was it's super happy. There's no better feeling than having a physical manifestation of your work in your own hands. And I was inching ever closer to the actual release of the book, but it was still not finished. I knew from listening to other authors talk and write about their process that if I wanted the book to make an impact, I would need for it to be professionally edited. And so once the first draft was done, I reached out to Twitter, like I always do, for help with editing. And I read a blog post by um, my fellow indie hacker here in Berlin, Artyom Dashinsky, and talked to a few other founders who I admired about their process and tools. And as a result, I chose to first find the copy editor, have them edit my work, and then have a proofreader come through it again. That was what I was going to be doing. I found both of these professionals on the Readsy platform. It's all linked in the article. So 
Um, a great platform, by the way, for anything related to professional work on your on your writing. You can even write your book on the platform. They think they just released an editor as well. It's very well integrated with everything else. You can have a developmental edit, copy edit. It's, it's a nice platform. I'm, I'm not being paid for this, but it's really cool. Um, so first I prepared a description of the book with a sample chapter, and then I selected a couple of potential editors from this massive list of available freelancers. And almost all of them sent over a quote, some after asking a couple clarifying questions, which was really nice. And I quickly found a very suitable copy editor in Kelly Lydic, and we got right to work. I had a call with Kelly, and she explained how the copy edit would work, what I could expect, and how we would communicate. She also offered me some insightful advice, I guess, on the self-publishing process, which was definitely above and beyond just the copy editing job that I would pay her for. So it was really cool. And also, for the very first time, I had to give over control of my book to somebody else. And I had to get used to the new experience of waiting for somebody different from me to get something done. So that was new and interesting to me as well. And the experience was quite professional, super professional and very pleasant. And Kelly was quick and reliable. And she reached out when there was something that she needed to understand. The only problem that I had during the whole process was the severe lack of tools in the collaborative manuscript editing space. Like there was... It, it, just my Scrivener file, that was what I had. And there was Kelly with her other colleagues requiring a file format that could track changes reliably, which Scrivener is not meant to accomplish. So we eventually had to resort to mailing Word documents back and forth, as only that word processor in particular seems to have figured out tracking changes to the extent needed in publishing. Google Docs seems to work for this too, but still some editors have bad experiences with the reliability of Google Docs change tracking, so everybody likes to work with Word files sent back and forth. And if you ever ever publish or work with editors, expect to work with Word documents until they're software in the space to bridge that particular gap. And when Kelly had finished her copy edit of my work, which took two weeks, I think, she sent me back 3,330 revisions on 120,000 words cut back to 105. That was a fantastic feeling. And I mean this both honestly and jokingly. Because not only did it mean that the book had just been reviewed by a great editor, but it was also improved over 3,000 times. So as a speaker of English as a second language, I knew it would make a very big difference. And going through changes, I learned a lot about my own shortcomings when it comes to expressions and language and how to improve my writing. It was terrific. And I shared all of this with my Twitter community as well to lots of laughs and other people sharing their own experiences as well. Kelly had also succeeded in, like I said, trimming the fat of Zero to Sold, the initial 598-page book turned into a book with just 500 pages, I think 490-something. I was happy with that, knowing that it would make the book much more understandable and a bit lighter, because it was still going to be a heavy book. And once I'd reviewed all of Kelly's changes, I immediately went to look for a proofreader. Like, with the um, the difference here, a copy editor will take quite a while to work through the book, and a proofreader will usually be faster the solely tasked with making sure that no mistake may have been missed by the first editor. And very quickly, I found a proofreader called Joanna Pike, who did a phenomenal job. I sent over the manuscript immediately, and once again, Word documents were used. And I had to wait again for a good week. It was pretty exciting, honestly. I knew that I was so close to finishing the book, just a couple more days, and I would start uploading it into the stores. And naturally, every day in this week felt like a week all in itself. So... Um, in itself. And I, I gave, I, I, yeah, it gave me some time to prepare all the next steps. In all my research on ebooks, I learned that there are quite a few people out there who like reading their books as PDFs on both mobile and desktop devices. 
I learned that in a couple of conversations in the self-publishing Reddit and uh, in, in, in reader communities like Goodreads and stuff. So you, you do go there and talk to people, listen to people on what their preferences are in your community on how to uh, use your content, how to like ingest your content. If they like PDFs, you might need to offer one. And I had learned in a conversation with another founder that just really selling the print-on-demand PDF file that I would upload to Amazon for them to print it um, was not a good idea. It was actually really not a good idea. It was a bad idea because it would invite counterfeits, mainly if the book had had some success. And I've talked to other founders and writers who had successful books being counterfeited because they initially uploaded the PDF that they would also use for printing it. So I set out to create a PDF that would be great on screens, both on a mobile um, and on a computer, on a desktop, but just look a bit too weird when printed. And I found my solution in a couple of open source tools. The ebook management tool Calibre has a command line tool called ebook-convert that I used to turn the EPUB file that Valum generated into a beautiful PDF. And the more I learned about this, the more I realized that I would actually create two PDF variations, one for easy reading on mobile and one for bigger screens. You can see the difference in the screenshot in the article. It's quite significant, and it still doesn't look like a printed book too much because it's it has like a, a different kind of style. And both PDFs would look great on the respective devices they're optimized for, but they wouldn't resemble a book when printed, and that was the most important part. It took me a while to get the settings right, mostly because I needed to severely compress the raw converted PDF files. PDF still is a monster. Please feel free to use the, the script that I wrote for your own PDF generation needs if you need to build PDFs from EPUB files or any other kind of file that Calibre can read. I uploaded the PDF generation script to my GitHub as well, github slash arvidcall slash zero dash two dash sold, I guess, somewhere in there. You just look for me on, on my GitHub profile and you'll find it. And I prepared sev several other things as well, images and text for marketing. So um, I would always need a couple of good paragraphs of descriptive text and a couple of good product screenshots and mockups because the book did not exist as a physical object yet at that point. So I used a service called Placeit that had already served as well when we were running Feedback Panda for our product mockups. So now I had everything in place right, for, for the book to be submitted to the stores. The moment Joanna sent over the proofread manuscript uh, back to me, I worked in all the changes and transported the text back into Vellum, had to fiddle with the style, created the print and ebook versions, then generated the PDF files through my script, took like 10 minutes, and then I uploaded all the files into the respective portals, both on Amazon KDP and on Gumroad. So now it's getting exciting, right? So I knew that there would be a delay a couple of days while Amazon made sure that everything was in order, just like 72 hours max. So I used the time to send advanced copies to the people that I wanted to thank that had some impact um, in my life. And I always felt that often in life, ask and you shall receive was the way to go. So I swallowed my pride and sent emails to my heroes, which is hard. Sending a cold email to people you never talk to, not so easy. But I talked to authors, founders, experts, entrepreneurs. I mailed them all. I sent um, yeah, to people I admired, people I thought I'd never talked to. I sent every single one of them a personal email with all digital versions of the book attached and telling them extensively on how they had helped me along my journey. And the responses I got were beautiful and opened a lot of communication channels that later developed into incredibly fun projects even. Um, so never say never. Try to reach out to the people you think you wouldn't or couldn't be talking to. It did a big difference because they also shouted out my book the moment I released it, right? So with that, I was ready for the launch. I told everybody that I sent an email when the launch was going to be. 
and they helped me out on that day. Um, the editing for this whole process had cost me around $3,000 altogether. So it was time to see if and how I could, if and how, I guess how quickly I could recuperate all of that. So let's now talk about the launch. I knew that I would need to wait a couple days for the book to appear on Amazon. Um, I had submitted my files to the stores on Friday the 26th. So I designated the following Monday, the 29th, to be my launch day. I composed a lengthy Twitter thread over the weekend and I shared a bit of the backstory, thanking everybody who'd been following me along throughout my journey and store uh, shared the, the store links in it. I composed that and scheduled it. Um, I, at that point, I had a Twitter audience of, I guess, uh, 4,500 people, which already had grown significantly throughout my writing. And uh, I launched the thread at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, which was 2 p.m. here in Germany on that Monday, because I wanted to reach both of my primary audiences, which were North American and people from India and the Middle East. These are my my bigger, bigger audience at this point. And I wanted to reach them at the same time. So I picked a time that was late in India and early in North America. And I had scheduled the thread in Hype Fury, a tool that I highly recommend if you work with anything with Twitter in advance. And I just watched the minutes tick down until the big reveal. And here's another very important thing about this launch. I'm usually quite conservative in my expectations. I've learned that if you aim high but don't expect too much, you cannot be disappointed too quickly and too easily. So I looked at all the other ebook success stories and said to myself, if I even hit 10% of the volume that they make, their launch would be a great success. So to me, that was selling 20 books on launch day and maybe 50 during the first week. That was my dream number at that point. Well, it turned out to be slightly higher than that. In fact, it was 17.5 times as much. Within the first 24 hours of being available on Gumroad and Amazon, I sold 350 copies of Zero to Sold. So on Gumroad, where you can have a, a, an app on your phone with notifications, I still have a screenshots, uh, screenshot of the sales coming in every couple minutes. It was, it was wonderful. And it was a smashing success. People commented on the thread. They liked and retweeted it. All of this engagement was incredibly orga- organic and honest. People engaged with the thread quickly and didn't hold back on congratulating me both for getting the book done and for the success that the launch was proving to be because I purported all the numbers as they came in. And I shared those milestones deliberately, knowing that people would love to see and support such a project getting traction. And the best thing was how people showed their support, both on launch day and throughout the weeks. They started sharing pictures, screenshots of having purchased from Gumroad, screenshots of having ordered the book, the print book on Amazon. And then a couple of days later, best of all, pictures photos of themselves holding the print version or their Kindle with Zero to Sold loaded and smiling into a camera. That was the most heartwarming thing that people ever did for me online. I still smile every time I see a reader share a picture of my book. And as an aside, I think I also learned about how many people have casual access to gorgeous pools. There was quite a lot of people sitting on the pool side with the Kindle or the book and reading. So that was really, really nice. And the bookmarked all of these pictures. And I posted a giant Twitter thread a couple weeks after the launch. And I was thanking every single person for the picture they took. And I was highlighting something about them. So they would get to be exposed to my now five, 6,000 uh, people large following on Twitter. Um, and there couldn't be any better marketing for a book than people willingly sharing a picture of a product on their personal accounts. Really couldn't be any better. And we knew that from Feedback Panda too, like word of mouth. and telling people in your community about something that you really like and showing it, proving it, there's nothing 
that builds better relationships with customers and turns prospects into consumers and customers of your business. So from that initial launch tweet alone, I had a lot of traction, but I wasn't done yet. I wanted to try one more thing and see if I could pull it off. I was going to attempt my very first product hunt launch because I've never done this before. I had zero prior experience, you know, like any bootstrapper with everything. So I just wanted to do it. So for the day after the launch, the second day, I prepared to schedule launch on Product Hunt, which you can do. You can prepare everything and then launch it at a, at a specific day at a specific time. I scheduled it to be launched five minutes after midnight in the Pacific time zone because I read about that somewhere on websites telling me how to do a Product Hunt launch because like, what do I know, right? They said the um, page resets at zero PST. So um, better, if you, if you want to be on the new day's page as quickly as possible, we'll schedule your launch around that time. And that way, Zero to Sold would appear on the New Day's list of products immediately, five minutes after the, the day was on. Um, yeah, flipped over. And I also knew that as a year-long lurker of Product Hunt, that the description would need to be significant to get people in there. I handcrafted a longer-than-average description and explanation of the book, and I made it personal by adding a picture of Danielle and me when we took our Feedback Panda shirt. I was wearing it to the Great Wall of China. Um, Danielle was giving a talk at the conference there, and I tagged along. And we took one day out of the many, many conference days to went to the Great Wall. And we, of course, took marketing stuff because it couldn't be better to um, have a little panda, like toy panda, wearing a little shirt and me wearing the bigger shirt on the Great Wall of China when we were building a tool where we would support English as a second language teachers who taught for Chinese education technology companies, right? Hunters love to relate on Product Hunt to real people. So here we were. Couldn't get more real than a couple of tourists wearing branded shirt with their swag. So I'd created a nicely animated logo as well. And that was it wasn't too flashy, but would still grab some attention. I added a table of contents as an image for the, those kind of hunters who needed more insight into the book. I did everything I thought I need to make the product page look nice. And then I scheduled it and went to bed. Because midnight, midnight in PST would be 9 a.m. in Germany. So I would wake up around that time anyway, I guess. Well, I'm, I sleep pretty late, if uh, you didn't notice until now. So when I woke up at a quarter to 10, even a bit later, the next morning, I immediately checked the post and it had already gathered some 20 upvotes at that point. I think it was the fourth um, on the list, just 45 minutes into being public. And I took that as a sign. I took a screenshot and posted that on Twitter. And within an hour, the book rose to number one on Product Hunt. And it stayed there until 18 or 19 hours later, ending the day at number two, even though it had more upvotes than the number one at that point. I'm not going to go into the details of how the algorithm of Product Hunt kind of screws you over, but it was wonderful. It was a fantastic day for Zero to Sold, and the traffic to my blog was incredible. I think I got twice the traffic traffic that day to my blog, where the books page was hosted with all the links to the the portals, Amazon and KDP and, and, and Gumroad than the day before when I had launched it through Twitter. So I got the the hug from Product Hunt and I responded to questions on Product Hunt immediately, increasing uh, engagement further. And then I tweet about it every day and even Product Hunt tweeted about it and it got me some more traffic. It was really nice. And I didn't even think of that, but high-ranking products make it into the daily and weekly newsletters that Product Hunt sends out to hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people. So when those went out, I got even more eyes on the product than my blog. And Zero to Sold ended up being the number four product of the week, which is cool. And I think this counts as a pretty first, pretty solid first product at launch for somebody with zero prior experience. 
And I guess the important part was to consistently engage the community on all levels, right? The traffic, um, talking to people about what happened on my side, how my numbers were looking, how people were engaging. It's just important to, to talk to the people that you want to be interested in your stuff and give them something interesting. And then another thing happened. While all of this was happening with the launch and product hunt, the book started to rank on Amazon. First, it became a bestseller in the category startups, which was mind-blowing. Like It was literally ahead of Zero to One by Peter Thiel and Eric Ries, the Lean Startup. Like I would never experience having more sales on one day than those two people with their amazing literature. It moved to bestseller in small business, where it all of a sudden competed with other books that were super interesting and that I owe a lot to. Um, and after a few days, it turned into number one new release, alternating between both the startups and the small business categories. And it stayed like that for two weeks, which was incredible. And uh, yeah, I still really can't believe it. I took screenshots every single day. I had that that also happened in the German and the French and the UK Amazon store. Um, and and it's, it's it's been mind-blowing. I never thought that I would get that much um yeah, just just a recognition even for my work. And I'm I'm extremely glad. And it was one more thing. And that I think is the most important thing. Danielle baked me a celebratory cake in the shape of a book. And she painstakingly hand painted the cover of my book onto that cake. Pictures in the blog post. It's amazing. And I'm eternally grateful for her for that because that was such a cute idea. And it was just another way of manifesting the success. Of this year. I think she even put number one new release in orange paint to the corner of the cake. It's just beautiful. Let me talk a bit about the revenue finally coming uh, almost to a close here. The next Monday after that, um, exactly seven days after I posted that initial tweet, I checked my numbers again because I was transparent about the sales every single day and I sold almost exactly a thousand books within the first week since I had hoped to sell 50 to begin with. That was an incredible number to me. I did some math and I ended up around $8,500 in revenue for the first week. I tweeted about this and posted an article with all the numbers in Indie Hackers, which got some solid traction as well. And with expenses of around $3,000, let's say $3,500 for all the kinds of little tools and services that I had used, that left left me with $5,000 in earnings, um, actual revenue um, after the expenses were deducted there for the first week. So the book was already cash flow positive and that was wonderful. And, uh, <clears throat> still an incredible feeling, kind of losing my voice here, just out of uh, amazement. It's, yeah, I, I shared the revenue and the sales numbers for each of the first seven days and then every single week. And I'm now at a monthly cadence where I share numbers every month. And I'm telling my followers about the progress of my sales, not only as a form of marketing, I mean, it always is, but also to give them a realistic glimpse into the sales of an info product like Zero to Sold. Because, of course, the first couple of days were like hundreds of sales, and then it went down to dozens of sales. And now it's kind of a 10, between 10 and 15 sales every single day, which is still amazing for a passive thing that sells itself, obviously. But it, it is, it's not going to be hundreds of books immediately every single day, right? This takes time for books to climb to that level. The amount of recommendations that people have to give has to climb significantly. And I just want to share with people who have similar ambitions of writing and publishing a book how this works and what they can expect if it goes good, if it goes well. So within a month, 
Um, I had sold 1,571 books for a whopping $12,871 of revenue with, yeah, 4000 ish dollars of cost at that point. That was a pretext profit of over 8000 for the first month. And for me, that is a success, a big one. And of course, yeah, like I said, the sales figure would drop over that time. The initial launch buzz would subside, but that's both expected and accepted by me. I would rather have my book be recommended by people who read and liked it than push it onto people who have no use for it. But I do encourage readers to, uh, any readers of any book, to give the book uh, they reading a rating and a review wherever they can. Because that's the lifeblood of a long-term success for a book. And it's something you cannot pay for. So I have to ask nicely. I've been reaching out to people individually. And over time, more and more reviews have started to appear all over the place. If, honestly, if you leave, if you like any book, consider leaving an review, particularly if it's been re- released recently. That can make or break the success of the book. And of course, if you read and liked Zero to Salt, please leave an Amazon review for that particular book. That would, would really help me significantly. And that's the only kind of market I'm going to do here. But let's just talk about now that the sale was um, the, the launch and the first couple of weeks of the sale were, were, were a lot, big success. Let's talk about the future. Because people immediately started asking for an audiobook after I had released the print and ebook versions. And for a while, I considered recording that myself. But still, for like 500 pages of high-quality audio turned into an audiobook, I, I finally settled in hiring a professional. That process is currently happening through the Findaway Voices platform. It's a really nice platform to get audiobooks read professionally. I'm looking forward to bringing the book to those who either don't have the time or the inclination to read. And it's just nice to have your book as an audiobook. Honestly, I want to listen to it because that's kind of cool. So, um, yeah, it, that, that is in the works. But let's look at what worked, I guess. The, this launch, the success I had has shown me one thing. The concept that I outlined within the book worked. In a way, Zero to Sold could well have been called Zero to Published and might have focused on creating an info product instead of a SaaS. It's pretty much the same. I found an audience I cared for. I found the thing they wanted most. I solved it in the way they liked and expected. And I created a product and a medium that they could use. That formula is at the core of Zero to Sold. And it helped the book become a success. So it's kind of a meta situation. Well, Zero to Sold's contents itself helped sell Zero to Sold the product. Building in public, or rather writing in public, has been tremendously enjoyable for me. And I will keep doing that for a long time for as long as I can. Inspiring people to follow their dreams and being able to accompany them along the journey is a powerful thing and I relish in it whenever I get the chance. So the bootstrapper and indie hacker community, particularly on Twitter and within the forums, chats, and groups that that, uh, people are involved with is a beautiful place to be. I want to stay there. And as I've learned throughout this journey, sharing knowledge is something that people value very highly and will eventually reward. And what a rewarding experience this has been so thank you to everybody who looked at the guide looked at the compendium looked at the book bought the book read the book reviewed the book commented on the book shared something about the book just followed my journey but didn't do any of these things it's just listening to it now thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the support that i've received over the last months over the last year even it's been amazing and i Hope to continue this journey. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast today. 
You can find me on Twitter at avidkahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book, Zero to Sold, at zerotosoldbook.com. If you have any questions about this episode or the book, reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me and the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating and a review either with the book or by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It'll help other founders and founders to be to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.